Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. Today my guest is Dr. Rick Hansen, psychologist, best-selling author, and founder of the Wellspring Institute for Neuroscience and Contemplative Wisdom. The subtitle of one of Rick's books, Buddha's Brain, is The Practical Neuroscience of Happiness, Love, and Wisdom. And that speaks volumes about Rick's purpose as a clinician and teacher, which is to show clients effective ways to light up the brain circuits that relieve worry and stress in order to promote positive relationships and inner peace. Rick is a senior fellow of the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley, and recently he's developed the Positive Neuroplasticity Training to teach general methods of self-directed brain change. He's a wise teacher and a great resource at this time. Well, here we are, man. How are you doing personally? Everybody's healthy and that's all that I can ask for, Rick. Um, how are you doing? Mostly I'm doing really well. I'm noticing that <laughs> in the parfait of my consciousness, there is definitely a background of activation and concern, outrage and reactivity. And normally uh, I'm, you know, really serene. So I, I would just say, I, I want to acknowledge that. Basically, I'm good. I would say good locally, appalled globally. When a situation like this happens, you know, there are a variety of ways to respond to it. And amidst multiple reactions to it, including enormous concern for people here in America and around the world who are being slammed by this and will be slammed by this, amidst all that, amidst a lot of task-oriented, busy, 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 get stuff done. Amidst all that, wow, is this interesting. I mean, this is uh, certainly unprecedented in the history of America, the scale of this. It'll be, it will be way beyond the Spanish flu and the dust settles. It's certainly unprecedented in the lifetime, in the living memory of basically anyone who was you know, born in America. Uh, so it's really new. And then we have so many levels of it. We have the biology of it. We have uh, the politics of it. Uh, we have the scrambling at everybody's level. We have just how people are reacting to it, uh, including managing, for example, feeling irritated and annoyed and stressed and frustrated by all kinds of things. So I find all that really interesting. Well, that's good. It's great to get your perspective on things. I wanted to talk to you because you have brought a lot of peace to me across the years through the, the wisdom contained in your books, whether it's from that sort of meditation and mindfulness perspective or the neurobiological perspective for which you're, you're so well known. One of the books that I really love from your compendium is Just One Thing. And it's this incredibly insightful book that uses short phrases to, to denote each chapter and you kind of explicate what the what the phrases mean. And I thought I could throw some of these phrases or chapter titles at you mm. and you could use them to explicate how during this particular time amidst the coronavirus pandemic that the world is enduring right now, how we can use these to achieve sort of a, a greater sense of calm and well-being. Mm. Okay. During this time, I think a lot of us are afraid of becoming sick, afraid of our friends becoming sick, our family becoming sick. Um, and so there's a phrase that you write in your book, notice you're all right right now. Could you speak a little bit about that? This practice is profoundly important these days. We don't know what the future will bring. And so much of our anxiety is anticipatory anxiety in the technical phrase. So if we can recognize when it's true 
only when it's authentically true, but it's usually authentically true that in this moment, we're basically all right, right now. I use the word basically in there. In other words, there's enough air to breathe. Um, there's the heart is still beating. No shark is chewing your foot off in this moment. There are times in our life where we're not basically all right. One may not have been basically all right sometime in the past. One may not be basically all right sometime in the future. Maybe a horrible physical pain, terrible illness, devastating, shocking loss, flooded with moral outrage, at terrible decisions made by people in power. There are times when we're not basically all right. But most of the time, we're basically all right. And so when you tune into that, you go, yeah, there is enough air in this moment, you can do this very interesting and powerful practice of shedding unnecessary anxiety. You can kind of feel it falling away as the sense of reassurance enters you as you abide in the present. I'm all right right now. So it brings you into the now. How are you doing right now? Are you basically all right now? Well, yeah, I actually am. Well, if you know, right, conceptually, yeah, I am basically all right right now. I wish it was better. And, you know, I'm a little worried about the corner, but yeah, right now I'm basically okay. Uh, when that's true, can you let yourself feel it? Can you open to the relief and the reassurance in the body? It's like that poor soft animal of the body, paraphrasing Mary Oliver, the poet. The soft animal of the body is just edgy and scared so much of the time. And it's kind of like petting or or um, soothing uh, a, a horse. I think about a horse that's really jumpy and, and nervous and, and frightened. You put your, your hands on the side of the horse and it's okay. It's okay. Well, we can bring that sense of it's okay to our own bodies, our own being uh, through recognizing and really feeling, hey, in this moment, it's, it's okay enough. In this moment, we're basically okay. It's a beautiful practice and it's really good these days. During this time, it, there's this desire to completely understand the situation and control the situation. But you have uh, a wonderful chapter in your book, Just One Thing, that is named Don't Know. So could you speak about the, the idea of don't know? In our culture in which there's an explosion of science and 24-7 access to information right at your fingertips with a click of a mouse, it seems counterintuitive to say, you know, it's actually valuable to rest in the feeling of don't know. And to be clear, don't know mind, to draw on the phrase from Korean Zen, don't know mind, uh, is not duh mind. It's just don't know. I'm uncertain or I'm really living in the moment and I actually don't know because no one knows what will be happening a minute from now or a breath from now, let alone an hour, a month, or a year from now. And there's a kind of freshness or the eyes of a child. Here we have the saying, beginner's mind, Zen mind, you know, the beginner's mind attitude of don't know. I uh, was once talking with uh, Mu Song, who uh, has been an abbot in a Zen center and is a major figure at the Berry Center for Buddhist Studies. And I asked Ms. Song once, so what do you, what's your practice like these days? What are you, what are you practicing with? It's always a good question, right? Especially when you have a chance to ask a, a very senior teacher that. And he said, well, I'm really practicing with having no expectations. 
And he meant that really seriously, no expectations. And I, as a neuropsychologist, I know that the brain is constantly generating expectations about what the cup will feel like, how much it will weigh as we reach our hands to the cup so we can you know, judge how much muscle effort to apply. And so we're generating expectations all the time. We do that interpersonally. You can just watch your mind doing that when you're talking with someone, you're kind of anticipating what they'll say and wanting to jump in maybe. And it's really remarkable to do a practice for just a little bit even where you disengage from that expectation machinery. And the benefits of it uh, really speaks to Suzuki Roshi's line about uh, beginner's mind. He said, in the, uh, you know, in the beginner's mind are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, or let's say the all-knowing mind, there are very few possibilities. So when we drop into not knowing, oof, like the world shines forth. You know, I'm curious, so I wanted to dig in a little bit to your experience uh, right now, you know, experiencing the shelter in place and you're in Northern California, you're a teacher and a writer, you speak to people and now with this edict not to congregate, I'm just curious how it affects you and how you are entering this situation with equanimity. Yeah, speak, speak a little bit of, about your current experience, if you would. That's really interesting. Um, I summarize how to be and how to act about this time with three short headlines. Uh, one is find your footing. The second is calm and center. And the third is tend and befriend. For me, find your footing has to do with understanding the situation, drawing on expertise and grounding yourself so that you can take appropriate action. For me, appropriate action includes doing a number of things that make it fairly certain that my wife and I uh, will not get infected today. We're in the age bracket where in which uh, a significant fraction of people, so if you think about an event occurring in our relationship, our marriage, you then double the frequency of that, right? So you got to kind of think about that. And bottom line it, uh, we're in an age bracket where current estimates are that either one of us gets it, the other one will, and there's at least a 5% chance that there will be a funeral in our marriage. And we, you know, we don't want that to happen, right? So on any given day, uh, for me, it's a comfort actually to know, mm -mm, not today, I'm not gonna add any unnecessary risk if it's just a matter of convenience or preference. Nope, we're just not gonna do that today. And knowing that we're taking action to be appropriately cautious, to hopefully still be here three months from now, as you know, there will still be consequences, I think, a few months from now, but just to get to that, you know, just to get past peak bad, which I personally anticipate in the months in America of um, April, May, and June. I think we'll look back probably and see that, yep, peak bad was that time. So I want to get through that time and keep on going afterwards. So knowing that we're taking action to do that is actually a real comfort. It's really a comfort. Um, uh, calm and center, absolutely central. Uh, I have a lot of background in the wilderness. And you know, when the storm comes, and we are in the middle of a storm, and it is just beginning. Uh, when the storm comes, 
you have to stabilize yourself. Uh, there's a book uh, about uh, you know things that happen in wilderness and otherwise with the very compelling title, Who Lives and Who Dies? And when they uh, investigate incidents of plane crashes or people being swept away in an avalanche or uh, different, you know, their car breaking down in the Mojave Desert in the middle of the summertime, let's say, who lives and who dies? And the people who live, who get through this, calm and center, calm and center. And then tend to befriend. They're scared too. They're stressed and scared too. They're freaking out too. Right or wrong, they're freaked also, right? And so there's this phrase from the work of Shelley Taylor, who's a psychologist at UCLA, uh, she talks about different ways to respond to stress and you know an alternative to fighting and fleeing and freezing is tending taking care of others and befriending making uh, contacts with others appreciating uh, relationships having compassion for others under the heading of tending and befriending so as we reach out to others as we look for ways to connect as you and i are doing this now normally we talk with each other face to face uh, we can't do that. So we look for other ways to connect. And that's so important. It's important for us as social beings. It's important for those that we connect with as well. I mean, right now we are dispersing the herd as it were to save it, disperse the herd to save it. But we're herd animals, right? <laughs> we're, we're pack animals. We're very, very profoundly social primates. And this dispersal is really unnatural. It's wearing on us. So it's really important to compensate for it in any way we can. I'm so glad we're having this conversation, Rick, and I really appreciate you, you know, speaking to to our listeners as well. I, I have a question, which is, it's about the people who aren't listening to this podcast. A lot of the time during this pandemic, I've thought about the least fortunate populations, people who are just really beginning to be very badly affected by the by the virus, including the incarcerated, including those at ICE detention centers, and the homeless. And I don't really know exactly how to approach this sensation within me. Is there anything that I can do? I, I, I just wonder if you could, uh, I'm, I'm doing a really poor job of sort of articulating the, this question, but is there anything that I can do to benefit this population and to have a useful em emotion or thought process around what's happening? Well, well, it makes me think about this definition of privilege uh, I read once from, to hopefully I'll pronounce his name correctly, Tanahasi Coates, in which he said privilege means not having to take things into account. So, for example, my privilege as a tall man uh, is that when I walk down a dark street, I'm not concerned about being sexually assaulted. Uh, I might have other concerns, but I, that's not one of them. And so that's my privilege in effect. And so I just think it's really good that you're calling us, Sam, to uh, take into account those that we could easily, through privilege, not take into account, right? Out of sight, out of mind. So I, I want to honor you for that, first off. Uh, second, I think for myself, a way to practice with this is to deliberately take them into account. 
And it's a little bit like driving, you know, a beginner driver uh, is looking maybe 50 feet in front of the car and, you know, an experienced driver, such as the teacher of the inexperienced driver is saying, no, keep looking a hundred yards or so down the road, if not farther. And we need to move our gaze out. We need to widen our view deliberately to include more and more of those who are out there. And I think just that is a political act. Right. Because the powers that be, they want to sweep it under the carpet. They want to sort of bury their mistakes uh, so they're not so visible. And uh, it's important for us to 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 see, to bear witness. That alone is a profound political and moral act. And in my view, a spiritual act to continue to bear witness, uh, even if we can't do anything about it. So I think that part's important. This is a huge public policy wake up call. I think for many, many people who had the privilege or it, you know, jogging along at sea level a year ago, metaphorically, could afford to be picky and grumble about less than perfect options. What we have in front of us, obviously, uh, in America, and I think probably in many other countries in the world, certainly in America, we see in front of us the results of a vast 40-year experiment a 40-year experiment in which one political party, clearly you can understand which one, has deliberately mounted a sustained attack on the body politic, deliberately undermining the capacity of government at all levels to actually protect and help people, while simultaneously dividing people from each other in this country for the sake of their own gain, politically and financially. And we're seeing the results really accelerated. Uh, This sustained attack on scientists, expertise, sustained attack on the rule of law, civil society, a deliberate attack over the last several years in the Trump administration on public health capabilities directly related to a response to an epidemic. And we could kind of sort of maybe as a country get away with all that. I I think of it as, you know, highly motivated profit-seeking termites chewing away invisibly in the walls day after day after day of the body politic, of, of American society, of the commons, of the community, of the common good, chewing away for 40 years. And the building kind of looked pretty okay, you know, from the outside, even though those termites were chewing away. And and as long as we were lucky and there wasn't any really big storm, we were going to be okay. But when the storm comes, as it is coming, as it has come and will keep coming right now, uh, and it lands on that house that's been hollowed out deliberately from the inside over many decades, well, we see the results everywhere around us. So one of the ways we can really help the people that are marginalized, the people that have been most exploited, the people who have been least included, the people who have been most harmed. For a generation, that's how long this has been going on, Sam, as you know, for a generation. One way to help those people, frankly, is to elect people uh, when you have any kind of opportunity to do that, that actually care about the common good and actually care about communicating in good faith about the common good rather than investing in uh, uh, bad faith and lies uh, to you know, serve their own pocketbook. 
what I want to uh, ask you to discuss right now is this chapter title, Honor Your Temperament. How does honor your temperament uh, fit into, into what we're working with now? Hmm. There's a classic model that uh, any day is the result of three things. Uh, any life is the result essentially of three things, the combination of challenges, vulnerabilities, and resources. So we are now dealing with a really challenging time. For example, social, social isolation, right? Physical isolation, physical distancing from other people uh, doesn't land as hard on introverts gen as a generalization as probably it lands on extroverts or lands on people who really draw upon social support uh, to kind of buttress other vulnerabilities. And now they don't have access to those resources of touch or comfort or just hanging out, goofing with your friends over a cup of coffee or a pitcher or you know, a glass of beer. So um, it's really important, I think, to be real about your temperament. You know, in other words, your genetically based uh, personality, uh, your sensitivities, you know, extroverted, introverted, uh, you know, excitable, calm, uh, you know, kind of uh, really op wide open to everything or more kind of, uh, you know, filtered in, in how you react to the world. You can recognize differences like that in a, a nursery, in a hospital with newborns. And you can really recognize differences of temperament when you start watching four-year-olds in preschool, right? And then, of course, life lands on us, and it shapes that temperament in different ways. So here we are today. It's kind of your nature, right? So honoring your nature is really important, um, which means taking into account particular ways that you might react, uh, for better or worse, to the current time. Uh, you know, honor, for me, doesn't necessarily mean, you know, acquiesce to your nature. It's more like, practice with your nature, you know, accept your nature, respect it for its gifts, also appreciate the ways it can be a little problematic. So for myself, um, I tend to be a sort of, I've acquired the nature of being a list maker and someone who's fairly orderly. And I, I function in dealing with a lot of flying plates, you know, spinning plates 24 seven uh, by being fairly procedural about it. You know, got to do this and we got to do that, got to do that. Well, that list making can start feeling a little oppressive <laughs> to the people I'm living with day after day after day. And I really say, okay, I got to lighten up about that. We're not going to get everything done today on the list, right? And so I, I take my nature into account. I don't feel like a bad person because, you know, I probably have at least one of the 10 genes for OCD, but I try to take it into account, including how it might land on other people. A different person might realize that they're a little prone to anxiety or very prone to anxiety. So it's not good to be uh, inhaling the news uh, 12 hours a day that they <laughs> might be served by just telling their friends, let me know if something really horrible or really wonderful happens, but otherwise I don't want to know about it. And maybe once a day I'll peek at my, you know, a news feed and just see if anything really weird has happened. But otherwise, no, not anymore for me today. You know, that's a different kind of honoring of your temperament. And um, the last thing I'll just say, it's not about honoring your temperament, but I really want to slip this in, <laughs> you know, if you'll, if you'll allow me, which is there's a, 
uh, a line in the, what's called the Pali Canon, the early teachings of the Buddha, the written record of them. It's sort of our best guess as to what he taught and thought. And there's a line in there that I've thought about, which could be translated as, find gladness in your goodness. In other words, when you appreciate your own character, your own effort, your own steadfastness, your own capacity, while being uncomfortable to keep getting it done, whatever it might be, the dishes, talking with a child, you know, making money somehow, you keep getting it done, whatever that might be. Uh, also getting in touch maybe with your inherent goodness, your inherently radiant heart. Um, these are things that serve your practice. They serve it by being a refuge, the sense of your own goodness in various ways can be a refuge. It's calming, it's reassuring, it's encouraging. It brings courage through encouragement. And also, as we have a sense of our goodness in various ways, it's not self-congratulatory, it's not vain, it's not conceited, it's not I'm better than others. It's just simply a knowing of your own good heart, your own good efforts, your own good mind, your own good you know qualities. Uh, as you ground in that, part of that is a sense of the fruits of your practice, the efforts you, the previous versions of you, yesterday, last year, 20 years ago, we're inherit, inheriting the fruits of the practice of our previous versions, right? Um, as you appreciate those fruits, it motivates you to keep practicing. So uh, one thing I would just kind of leave here is to say that appreciating that, yeah, yeah, in this crazy, unprecedented time, I'm showing up, I'm doing what I can. Like you said earlier, Sam, I'm keeping the forgotten ones, the brushed aside ones, the pushed under the carpet ones. Uh, I'm keeping them in mind. Uh, I'm letting a lot of weird stuff go by that I used to argue about or bicker with. I'm just letting it go by. I think a lot of practice these days in living with other people is just let it go by. Um, I'll just say this. My wife bought me this T-shirt and it looks very traditional. It's got a Buddha on the, on the you know, T-shirt and it looks silk screen. Looks like, you know, it came out of some used T-shirt store in Kathmandu 30 years ago. It's actually fairly new. But anyway, with this fairly traditional look are, is some lettering that at first glance looks like Sanskrit. But when you look more closely, it says, let that shit go, right? That's the essence of the Dharma. And I think part of, uh, <laughs> part of the goodness uh, that we can find in ourselves these days is a recognition of, you know, I'm just letting shit go at a whole new level here. And I can find gladness in that fact. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, well, Rick Hansen, thank you so much for, for talking with me and with us today on Voices of Esalen. I would just like, uh, before you hop off, if you'd be open to describing what kind of resources you have available on your website, rickhansen.net, which is R-I-C-K-H-A-N-S-O-N.net. Almost everything at my website uh, is free. 
So it's a vast <laughs> collection of talks, guided meditations, videos, slide sets for professionals and for the general public on various topics, uh, scientific papers that are really neat and accessible and in the public domain, um, and also a number of resources that are very specific for the pandemic that we're in the middle of. And they're freely offered and you can find them on my website. Also, we have a number of very well-organized online programs. They range from just one minute, which is, you, you like, you're gonna really like that one, Sam. Um, there are these short uh, videos and practices uh, all under two minutes that have to do with many of the things that we've talked about today, uh, including sort of um, how to practice in that particular way today, right? Just one minute, and there are 57 of them. So we have things like that as an online program, as well as a beautiful program related to my upcoming book, Neurodharma, uh, whose subtitle says it all, New Science, Ancient Wisdom, and Seven Practices of the Highest Happiness. So we have an online program uh, related to this 10-day meditation retreat I taught on that material, which is very accessible to the general public. It's you know, you don't have to be Buddhist or a brain scientist to, to get value from it. And that Neurodharma online program is really, really excellent. And then I've got other online programs as well. They're very well priced. They're highly accessible. They're super organized. Um, and I would encourage people to check those out. Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Terry Gilby, Shannon Hudson, and Greg Archer. Our theme music is by Nico Holloman. Additional music is by Gumpop. You can find all of our podcasts on your favorite podcast player, as well as at esalen.org. The Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization. Our show is made possible by your contributions. <laughs>